0: It's hard to compare it because I always say, like, everywhere you go is beautiful. Part of the beauty is being there and experiencing it, you know, um, and I think in terms of, like, mountainous scenery, Tajikistan in in Asia was probably the most spectacular.
1: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun.
2: Episode 207 Races to Places with Lyndon Poskett. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. Lyndon Poskett is an accomplished motorcycle racer and mechanical engineer from North Yorkshire in the UK. Although happily employed as an engineer, a hospital stay caused him to rethink how he was spending his time. Lyndon is on the show today to tell us about his current journey called Races to Places, which takes him all around the world on his KTM rally bike. So first of all, Lyndon, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it's always good to share my experiences with other people.
2: Well, I love good motorcycle adventure stories, so this should be a a fun conversation. So getting into it, let's start with you as a kid. Um, You started riding pretty young, didn't you? How did you end up uh, on motorcycles to begin with?
0: Yeah, I started, well, not that young. I wish I'd have started younger. I started when I was 10 years old. Um, and it was it was really my parents were really reluctant to let me have a motorcycle, but I really wanted one. I'd just been watching it on TV. My my father wasn't into motorcycles or anything. I just wanted a motorcycle. Um And so they let me have a trials bike for my ten. I think it was Christmas around my 10th birthday. And uh, I got a trials bike and my dad, my parents basically said to me, if you can show us that you've got skills to handle a motorcycle on a trials bike then you can have something faster, because I wanted a motocross bike, but they weren't going to let me have that. All they could see was broken bones and hospital visits. (laughs) Yeah, so I got a trials bike, and uh, I actually got very competitive, and that's where I realized how how much of a competitive person I was, and I started getting better and wanting to go out every weekend practicing and trials riding, and I just loved trials, and I did it for six years, (laughs) so um, I didn't actually get onto anything with any speed until i was like 16 17 really
2: well it's probably a good way to start the start slow and, and get the technical skill under you before you do get out there so they were probably smart to make that call yeah and
0: it's a it's a way that i recommend to a lot of my friends that are having kids now you know it's like you know get them a little little electric trials bike or something you know keep it slow let them get balance and get used to riding before you get into anything with any speed and that. I don't regret it. I mean, I, I wish I would have started riding earlier, like when I was four or five years old or something, but... Um, it was a really good, solid foundation. And now, like, balance is so good. Your balance becomes so good when you do trials riding that you just don't even think about riding the motorcycle anymore. You can concentrate on other things like navigation when you're riding. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the motorcycle skills become second nature. Yeah. So while we're talking about trials, just to, for those that might not understand what the trials riding is.
0: Yeah, trials riding is really, it's all about low low speed manoeuvring over obstacles, so it's just, you know, getting over logs and rocks and climbing waterfalls and all kinds of things like that, but typically it's all at speeds under like 20 miles per hour, you know, it's just, uh, it's all about balance and, and skill at getting up obstacles that are slippery or misshaped or something like that, so... Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a really, it's a really good best skill yeah, to have. absolutely.
2: Yeah, my son, I got him into riding dirt bikes at 10 years old. He's 12 now, so he's uh, been doing it for two years, yeah. and he's also recently picked up mountain biking, and I keep telling him on the single track trails that we ride, is that your their skills on the mountain bike that you're developing now will translate perfectly into riding that dirt bike uh, quickly and, and safely, yeah. and, and allow you to enjoy, and to enjoy it a lot more than uh, than you might have in the first place. So, I completely yeah. agree with that, yeah. uh, that methodology for sure, and I did
0: a lot of um, BMX, mountain biking, all kinds of stuff like that. Just just to train when I couldn't go on the motorcycle, you know, just to practice balancing and all stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely.
2: All right, so let's talk about competition then. So you started riding at 10, you started competing in trials, and then you graduated to ultimately competing in races like the Dakar Rally and and stuff like that. So let's go into that a little bit. Uh, How did you end up there, and then how is it you ended up on the road now?
0: It took a long time to get to the Dakar Rally, and, you know, I was 32 years old when I did the Dakar Rally, and I looked back at all the things that I did uh, in the past, and now it's apparent that it was just a clear journey to get to the Dakar Rally, and that wasn't in my mind that I could ever do the Dakar Rally. Um I just, you know, I love motorcycles, and I've raced in seven different disciplines of motorcycle now, so or competed in, should I say. So I've done, like, trials, motocross, enduro, supermoto, uh desert racing, road racing. So I've done a bit of everything and, and I did all of those in the run-up before the doing the Dakar. So, you know, I think my favourite probably was Supermoto racing. I raced Supermoto um for three years in Great Britain. Um did a little bit in Europe as well. Um and and it was it was really I'd done a bit of trials, a bit of motocross, a bit of Enduro, Supermoto, road racing um, and then I moved to the USA and I moved to Texas to work for Lockheed Martin as a contractor for a few years. Uh, I was an aerospace engineer and that was when I was 20, was it 25, something like that. Um, and when I moved to Texas, I... I basically wanted to do some traveling. So I bought myself a 950 adventure and I started a KTM 950 adventure and I started traveling a bit. And it was when it was while I was in the USA and that I did my first desert race, which was the Baja 1000 in 2007. Uh, So like nine years ago now, eight or nine years ago was my first desert race and I absolutely loved it. And I was like, this is like brings everything together. Like it's got the speed. It's got the technical parts. It's got riding in all different places, it's got night, it's got day, it's got everything Like, and I love this stuff, you know? Um, and that's how I realised that I really wanted to do more desert racing. So when I eventually, I didn't do much more in the US but when I I, I then got sent back to the UK, um, or should I say my job expired here and I went back to the UK and, uh, and I started racing rally and did the UK rally championship, did some European events and then it was apparent that okay... I need to make this happen. It's a dream I've wanted for so long. Like I've got to go do the Dakar rally. And, uh, and I started putting it in, into a place, you know, and it's just a massive machine, like trying to understand for the first time how to even get there is a, is a mammoth task. And, and eventually I put it together and went and did it. And thankfully I had a successful race. And, and that was kind of the pinnacle. That was like the top of everything i had done. Um, and so then I get onto the story about, well, how did you end up traveling then? Uh, so I did the Dakar Rally. I wanted to do it again. I had a successful race, finished 46th overall. I got a top 10 stage finish. And my plan was to go and do it again. But my bank balance definitely wasn't going to let me do it again. <laughs> That's so not true, is it? I no, no. So I decided that, okay, it's not realistic to do it again yet. Um, I need To do something different. So my plan was to do a different, something I haven't competed in before. So I decided to do some extreme enduro. So I started to train at extreme enduro and I was planning to do Romaniacs, Red Bull Romaniacs in 2013 in the expert class. So I was training pretty hard, doing some crazy stuff. And one of my friends at work says, "Uh, you need to be fit for this game. Like you should start running. And I was like, yeah, I'm not really into running. I'm I'm quite a well-built guy. I don't really run well. And he's like, I can train you to run well. I was like, okay. So we started to run together and he said, hey, you should do your first marathon. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do a half marathon. So we got set up to do this marathon, which a week before Red Bull Romaniacs. Um, and I didn't train as much as I should. And I was busy getting the bike ready for Romaniacs. And I just kind of blew it off. Oh, I can go do it, no problem. And I'm really competitive, so I got to the start of the morning of the race, and I wasn't feeling too good. I had a headache, and and I just thought, ah, oh, it'll be right once I get going. So I got running, and I got to 11 miles, and I and I was on my personal best, and I was chasing like the next person in front of me because I'm really competitive. And I thought I don't really feel too well at all, and I started to trip up over curb stones and stuff, and that's the last uh-huh. thing I remember. I was completely out. Um, and, you know, I owe my life to the paramedics that kind of brought me around at the side of the track and got me to hospital quickly. And I was nine days in hospital and I was in a bad way. And I basically just completely, my, my mind was stronger than my body and I just completely overdid it. And uh, yeah, I mean, daft as it sounds, almost killed myself. Um, so I missed Red Bull Romaniacs and I was lying in hospital thinking well that was close shave (laughs) like what do I want to achieve out of life before something like that (laughs) happens again and I was like oh I've always wanted to go riding a motorcycle around the world um but I probably can't do it so I started looking on the internet and reading about blogs of people that have done it and how much does it cost and how cheap can you do it and thinking about the bike that I wanted to use and everything and I just made the decision there and then that I've worked for 17 years and I don't want to do it anymore, I want to go do something different, Um, I want to go and experience life um, and travel the world and uh, so I'm going to sell everything that I own and go and do it and that's how it came about, so it's a long story but that's how it came about.
2: No, what a great story, though. I love the, uh, I mean, the fact that you ended up in the hospital, that's not a good thing, but it really made you, it sounds like it made you pause and think, you know, in an already busy life, you're doing all these races, and I mean, the Red Bull Romaniacs is, is not an easy race, you don't walk into that lightly, no. so you get all of this going through your head and this preparation and everything, and and you hadn't been able to stop and actually ponder what it is you want to do life, so it actually slowed you down and, and led you in a direction that seems pretty pretty darn cool.
0: Yeah, I look, at, I look at everything that happened before the decision to do this um, and it just all kind of falls into place. There was numerous things that happened and it just it just fell into place and I realized it's just time to stop and think about what you want to achieve. Uh, I would encourage anyone to do that because, you know, time just rattles by and when I thought about it, wow, I've been with the same company for 17 years. Like, wow, <laughs> that's a long time.
2: Right on. Okay. So you've decided to ride around the world. You put uh, put together, on paper at least, your dream bike. Um, first of all, what's the, the bike that you chose to go on and how did you come about it?
0: So the bike that I chose, so I'd raced the Dakar Rally on a 450 Rally KTM, um, a factory Rally bike. Um, and I really, really like the chassis of the bike and the suspension and the setup and how the bike works in all the sort of off-road conditions that I like to ride. Um And I realized the bike was light because it was a single cylinder and I'd been riding a KTM, excuse me, I'd been riding a KTM 950 um through Morocco and off-road and all over the world. I've been through Baja and Mexico, Copper Canyon and all over the place. And I just realized that I wanted something newer than my 950 adventure and I probably wanted something lighter so I could go to more places on my own without worrying about not being able to pick the bike up or getting stuck or something like that. So uh I knew it was going to be a single cylinder, which is a radical change for me because I was well known for like riding big twins and stuff. And um so I decided that it was probably going to be a rally bike chassis because I like it so much. And the previous model to the 450 was a 690, so... I started scouring around to find one of those and I found a well-used one and thought, right, I'm going to get that and totally rebuild it. I need to modify a lot of things. You can't fit a luggage rack to the 690 rally, so I need to change the rear fuel tank and fit a luggage rack and modify this, that and the other and all this stuff. And And it just started to come together like that, really. And it took me four months from getting the bike to having it ready to go on the trip. And that was with a full rebuild, like everything, so um and, and working at the same time i still have my job at that time so
2: right right yeah and you did all this rebuild yourself I and mean, when you talk about rebuild it's not you're you're not dropping parts off at the shop i mean you have some pretty pretty serious mechanical skills. yeah i just
0: did everything the whole bike nut and rot, bolt rebuild from the ground up everything um and and just built this bike which got called basil as uh i lost my grandfather so i was kind of just a, shortly before this trip and uh Long story short, his, his private number plate ended up on my bike, so I named the bike after him, and I've been carrying that license plate around ever since.
2: So. Uh, that's cool. I like that. It's very fitting. Yeah. So why did you end up calling this uh, Racist to Places? Yeah,
0: uh, another long story, I'm afraid. <laughs> <I wanted laughs> no, that's go- okay. I wanted to go traveling around the world and riding around the world, um, but I had a real love for racing motorcycles, and I think deep down, I didn't want to stop racing, um, but I'd made the decision to stop racing, and then it was when I went to visit the guys at AdventureSpec. AdventureSpec.com uh, are a good company that have helped me with my racing for years, Um Uh, And we've worked together on various projects like making DVDs, uh, riding through Morocco, and we've just like collaborated as good friends and, and kind of partners on various projects. And I went to see them to say, look, guys, I know that we've worked together so much in the past, but I'm going to stop racing. I'm going to go traveling around the world. Um, And they were like, why are you stopping racing? And I was like, well, I don't know, at least like, why do, and we got discussing it and then we just said, Yeah, I suppose we could race and ride around the world. That would make a great story. Um, and I've got the perfect bike for it because I wanted to carry on racing really. So I've got a 690 rally bike. Um, and that's how it was born really. And I went home that night and started thinking about different names, what it would be called and stuff. And, uh, and yeah, it just, it just fell into place. Races to, it was going to be called from races to places because originally because I was going from, Racing and everyone knew me for racing to travel into places. And cause it rhymed, I was just like, Oh yeah, let's call it from races to places. And then after the discussion with adventure spec and a few friends and family and stuff, I decided to drop the from and say, okay, I'm going to call it races to places and I'm going to ride a motorcycle around the world and race it as well. So.
2: So you say you're going to race the the bike in races around the world. So what kind of races have you been participating in? And I have to point out, you've been on the road for a good, what, probably two and a half years now? Yeah, you left the uh, spring of Two and a half
0: years at the end of this month. Um, and I've done six international races. So – or is it five? Five maybe, yeah. So I've done the Hellas Rally in Greece, which was the European race I chose to do uh, – International Rally of Mongolia, which was the Asian rally I did. Uh, I did the Think Desert Race in Australia. And then I did the Baja Rally in Mexico, Sonora Rally in Mexico, uh, and they're the five that I've done on the trip. And uh, all of them on the same bike other than one. The Baja Rally I did on a 450 because I'd committed to do the race uh, with the race organizers, but I just didn't get to the point where I wanted to be on my trip to ship my bike to, to mexico to race so rather than miss out on the travel opportunities in new zealand and australia i decided to leave my bike there fly to usa do the race and then go back and carry on traveling and that was that was a big change to the trip but again it was the best thing i did because i had a great time in australia and new zealand after the rally traveling around
3: This is Colorado nature photographer John Fielder. This holiday season, consider giving the gift of Colorado. I have an extraordinary 6,000-square-foot gallery in Denver's Art District on Santa Fe Drive. This season, i frame framed for display my favorite and latest Colorado wilderness images. The detail inherent in these seven-foot prints from recent summer treks into the Weminuche and Ragged's wilderness series will make you feel like you were right next to me when they happened. And my new prints from last year's remarkable fall color season will add warmth and a focal point to any home or office setting. The gallery has a full selection of my popular Colorado books, calendars, and holiday and note cards. Most are signed personally by me. My latest book is Wildflowers of Colorado, a collection of my favorite wildflower images made over the past 20 years. I even discuss where I go to photograph the best wildflower meadows in northern, central, and southern Colorado. Just don't tell me if you get a better photo than me. The gallery is located in Denver at 833 Santa Fe Drive. We're open Tuesdays through Saturdays, 9 to 5. Visit johnfielder.com for complete information about the gallery, print pricing, to see all of my books and calendars, and to learn about the photography workshops I'll teach around Colorado in 2017 and even the one at Alaska's Inside Passage next July. That's at johnfielder.com.
2: So you have this KTM 690, this bike that you've outfitted to be able to travel on. So for those that aren't familiar with motorcycle travel, I mean, we're not just talking a race bike that he's riding around the world on. You have bags on it. You have your luggage. You have this thing, you know, suspension and seat set up to actually be comfortable and to be livable on the road. Yet you're taking the same exact machine and you're putting it into these races up against bikes that are truly race bred you know these are bikes that are meant just for that that kind of race so how did yeah. that uh how did that go over with people that you're up against
0: yeah it's interesting i think um it, everyone's always really interested as to well why why have you got a big metal rack on the back of your rally bike you know <laughs> And it's like, well, that's to carry my luggage. Yeah, but take it off for racing. Well, yeah, but it takes me like 20 minutes to get it off and get it back on again. Like, I may as well just leave it on, you know. There's no advantage from taking five kilograms of, all right, there's a tiny advantage, but um, I'd rather just leave it on. And same with a lot of the stuff like, you know, GPS mount and all the stuff I use for traveling that you don't really need for racing. Usually just leave it on. Um, And, yeah, people... I I remember pulling up to Rally Mongolia and uh actually one of my, one of my best friends now, Yuji Shinohara from Japan, um, is like the first time I met him was at Rally Mongolia because I pulled up to the to the start of the race and I had all my bags on the bike and is that it was there and for him it was like well, who's this guy that's just rolled up on a rally bike with all this luggage on and why has he got all the luggage? And then he started talking to me. And then after realizing that I'd ridden all the way from the UK, he was he was like blown away and wanted to know more and and kind of wanted to be part of it. And, and as it happened, we ended up traveling together in Japan. It was really good fun. Um, but I think generally people just it's just not the norm, you know. The norm is to have your bike shipped to a race event, race it, and then go home and go back to work. Whereas for me, my, the norm for me is to ride to the start of a race transform the bike race transform the bike back again and then ride to the next race I, you know i don't fly anywhere i just ride <laughs> um and it's it's hard for people to kind of fathom it out what how how you do it but it's just it's a lot of hard work i'll say that like i've Sometimes I I wish it was easier than it is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, there's one there's one little good bit about that is that you can you can deal with time change a little bit. You know, as you're you're approaching that race and getting ready yep. for the race, you can plan ahead and get there, and and your body can deal. But at the same time, you're riding the same bike the the whole way. That's got to be pretty exhausting. And then to go enter one of these races where they're obviously highly competitive, that's got to be tough on you.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really tough on the bike as well. I mean, it is tough on me. It's tough on the bike. Um, but the bike, more than anything, like I, I have to hold my hand up and say, there's always something wrong with the bike. There's always something needs doing. Right. Like, whether it's paint coming off, whether it's plastics broken, whether it's the license plate gone missing, you know, some electrics not working, a wheel bearing on its way out, engine needing something. There's always something needs doing. If you you can't like. But he, people say to me, "Oh, but surely if you chose something like a 1200 GS, it'd be much easier." And it's like, no. I've spoken to people on those bikes, and like, if if those people took those bikes on the tracks that I take my bike on, it'd probably be twice as bad. <laughs> like, it's I've I've like I've ridden 55, 60 percent off road of my trip so far. um So the bike gets a hammering. So sometimes when I get to the races, I have to race with like. You know, steering bearings that are on the way out and stuff. (laughs) It just—I just don't have time to do it all. You just—you've got my my ability to put up with like less than normal. uh conditions of the bike has become really great. Like I can I can deal with anything almost.
2: Yeah, I'll bet at this point you just pretty much expect anything can happen too and just, like, just take it and roll with the punches yeah. when it does,
0: right? Exactly. Yeah.
2: So you're essentially unsupported, right? You're out there riding yourself. Anything that breaks, you're fixing, you're maintaining the bike at, at stops and you're even doing your own filming,
0: right? Yeah, that's right. I do uh do everything myself pretty much. I've uh so I travelled I've travelled with a few different people just for short term. I travelled a few months with a guy called Lucas from Austria across Europe and into Asia. Um and then I went on my own all the way down to Australia. Um and then from pretty much all of the Americas and Canada and Alaska I did on my own. I spent a few days with an old friend that I'd met um in asia a german guy on an africa twin i actually met him in new zealand and we did a few days together as well but predominantly i would say 80 percent of my trip now has been on my own
2: and like i said you were filming so i wanted to bring up your youtube channel uh you and adventure speck are, are you have a youtube channel filming your entire races to places journey so how's that going
0: yeah, it's going really well. Um, I have to say a massive thanks to Adventure Spec and anybody that watches the series um, to to really... Because if it wasn't for Adventure Spec, the video series wouldn't be there. Um, and and likewise, I suppose, if it wasn't for me, because I do all the filming, but just the actual logistics of getting what I film professionally edited and getting it on YouTube is, is not a small task. It's a huge task. And uh, I think we've got... 65 episodes out now on youtube um and some special features all professionally edited and you know i'm i'm really happy with the series we've got over 10 million minutes watched now on youtube which is better than i ever imagined like it almost started for a bit of fun uh in in the beginning uh when i started filming building my bike in the garage and all stuff like that um and it's yeah it's like Kind of, well, not gone out of control. It's a good thing, you know, but it's it's <laughs> really just it's starting to escalate now. Um, more and more people are starting to see it, uh, and thanks to everyone that shares it, because the more people share it, the more, uh, more people get to know about it, um, and the more people watch it. And uh, it's it's come to a point where I've we've we've released about fifty percent of the footage that I've filmed so far. So there's another. There's another 65 episodes filmed in the bag ready to be edited and released, but we're at a point now where I've I've spent so much money on it, and AdventureSpec have invested a lot of money as well, um, and we really need to try and get some help from other people, which is why we started uh, the Patreon channel, which is basically, Patreon just allows people to join as a patron. and um offer a small amount a big amount however much they want towards the issuing of more material so they're basically like if you want to pay 50 cents towards every episode that gets released we will we'll set a target that says when we re- receive up to 400 US dollars per episode through donations we'll do something extra so we'll either release more minutes per month We'll remove adverts, which actually we've already done. We've removed YouTube adverts now. So we hit, we hit the first target, which was, I think, $150 per episode um, through donations. And then we said, okay, we'll remove the YouTube ads. So there's no YouTube ads on new YouTube films of mine going on YouTube now. So you can just go straight into watching what you, you went to watch. Um, so everything that people donate is going to go straight back into the pot and all it's going to do is mean that you're going to get more episodes faster. So, um, there's, there's no like profit being made for anything. It's all just getting plowed straight back in. So the whole Patreon thing it's uh, I, yeah, probably need to advertise it a little better because a lot of people I meet and tell about Patreon, they say, Oh, I didn't even know about mm-hmm. it. But, um, it's a fine line between like, like ramming it down people's throats right. and just like. People know about it, and um, we hope that people do see the links on the videos now that say, "Do you want to wish to support this series? Please contribute here." So.
2: Yeah, and hopefully people do. I mean, you guys have been doing a great job with this series. I've been watching it, and I'm really looking forward to the to the the part of the series where you come through Colorado, through my neck of the woods. Um,
0: yeah, I filmed all that, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: good. Oh, I can't wait to see that. But you guys are doing a good job, and you're right; the ads aren't there, um, so you know, we go onto YouTube and we get a lot of content on there and, and it's easy to take that for granted. It's all free, you know, but somebody had to to bankroll that and pay for that somehow. So I would definitely, uh, Definitely uh, request the listeners to go on and check out your your channel. If you guys are into um, this kind of world travel and, uh, you know, you don't have to be into motorcycles, just world travel and, you know, get some inspiration to go do something like this. Go check out the YouTube channel and and pitch them a few bucks on Patreon. Uh, I love to see these things born like this and things that that keep going because the public can sit there and help uh, just by throwing a little bit of pocket change at you.
0: Yeah, and it's all all the all the episodes are free. So whatever people choose to contribute, um, the, the the product, whatever comes out of the channel will be free. You know, it's continue to be free. It's just a way of people showing their appreciation for the effort that's gone into it, and hopefully bring more to YouTube because that's what we want to do. I mean, I I look at where I'm at at the moment. Like I'm currently sat in the USA, uh, ready to head into Mexico. And we haven't even got to Australia yet on my video series. So, you know, there's so much more to be edited and I can't wait to get it all edited and get it released because there's so much good stuff to come that I filmed in Australia and New Zealand and through Indonesia and all of North America, Canada, Alaska, all of it. So I look forward to bringing all that out on YouTube as well.
2: Very cool. Well, I look forward to following you and, uh, and seeing it myself. So, Well, let's talk about the route that you've taken. Um, you left the UK, like we said, back in the spring of 2014, and you had a little bit of a rough start um, down at the Hellas Rally. So tell us about that, what happened there.
0: Yeah, I did um, uh, probably, le- probably less than two weeks. I think probably only a week into my trip, my f- that's what started that set the start date was that i needed to do the hellas rally was my first race on the trip so i was going to ride from the uk to greece race the hellas rally and then continue across to asia um and that didn't quite go to plan on day three of the hellas rally I dislocated my shoulder which um put me in a lot of pain and uh worse of all i didn't realize that it was dislocated and i'm a pretty uh, determined guy and I carried on racing like 200 and some kilometers to the end of the stage, knowing that something wasn't right. Every time I hit a bump, there was a shot, like somebody was stabbing a knife in my shoulder. Um, but I just kind of thought, ah, it's all right. I can still open the throttle and stuff. It'll be okay. Um, and then eventually got to the end, got it sorted out, went for x-ray at the hospital. And uh, they said, okay, it's all back in place and everything. Nothing to worry about now. It's just you, you will have some soft tissue damage. Um, you need to rest up so I went back to the rally headquarters thinking that I was going to get on the bike the next day and go racing until I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning um, needed to go to the bathroom and tried to get out of bed and was almost sick with the pain (laughs) then I realised I'm not going to be riding today
2: (laughs) (laughs) maybe time off is a good idea
0: yeah so it was uh, it was the first rally that I've never finished and I was really really annoyed that it was due to injury um And I ended up taking a couple of weeks off to rest and And then I didn't have time to fly home to get any surgery or get anything done, so I just wanted to do my trip because it's what I'd set out to do, so I just carried on riding um all the way across to Mongolia, where my next race was in Mongolia um and I carried on and I did that race uh in some minor discomfort, but it was getting a little bit better by then. Uh, And then I continued south to Australia, and I think by the time I got to Australia, my shoulder was starting to heal, which was about a year after uh, it was first injured.
2: Okay. So you left UK, went to Greece, and then Mongolia, and then down to Australia. Where have you been uh, after that to date? Uh,
0: So I went to – yeah, I rode all the way down through Asia, did loads of stuff in Asia on the way to Australia. Um, some great filming and stuff I did down there. Uh, and then Australia, I did 32,000 kilometers around Australia. Uh, north, south, east, west, crossed the center twice. Loads of off-road. Uh, really had a good time. Went to Tasmania and then I crossed over to New Zealand and did 15,000 kilometers around there. Uh, North Island, South Island, pretty much every off-road track I could find in the South Island I did. Um, uh, and then I shipped to uh, America where I rode down to Mexico to race the Bar, no, to race the Sonora Rally. Finished fifth in the Sonora Rally. And then I rode all the way up to um, Prudhoe Bay in Alaska. Uh, and then came down from there and went up to the Arctic Circle in Canada to Inuvik. And then worked my way back down through Canada. Uh, and then I picked up the Continental Divide and then a load of backcountry discovery routes across the USA. So I just worked my way down from Montana, Idaho area, all the way down to New Mexico, Texas, to where I am now in Texas in El Paso. Uh I just worked my way down, like using Continental Divide, backcountry discovery routes, well-known adventure rides, just piecing them all together to, to make up a route, really. Oh, very cool.
2: So you actually went uh, north to south uh, through Colorado then. Did you actually follow the, the, the actual uh, Continental, or I mean, sorry, the... Backcountry discovery, I, for Colorado.
3: Yeah,
0: I started a bit of it in the north, and then I took a detour across to um, I took a detour across to Denver. Uh, I went to see Woody's Wheel Works and mm-hmm. some friends over there, uh, and then I went back and picked up the route south again. And then I pretty much followed it all the way down um, until I got to. I did a load of passes. Um, well, I sort of got to. I went down to oh, where to go Salida. So I worked my way down to Salida, doing a load of fun stuff around there, um, and then I sort of headed west um, across and did did all like Engineers Pass and and all of that, all that Black Bear Pass and that region around there. Um, the famous is it Alpine Loop and stuff like that. Right. There. That was really great. Riding around there was awesome, and I was with my friend from the UK. He joined me for four weeks on a rally bike as well um my friend eddie from the uk and so that was it was really nice to travel with someone for a change you know i spent a lot of time on my own so it was nice to be with someone again um we had a great time we both ride very similar we both race so uh, we both enjoy riding fast so <laughs> we had a lot of fun uh, and then i did a lot, i did some road book riding and training um close to salida south southwest of salida and then again picked up the uh Backcountry Discovery Route. But then I peeled off and went across to Utah and spent some time in Utah before heading south again.
2: Very cool. Yeah, that area through the San Juans, the whole uh, Engineer Pass, Alpine Loop area is beautiful. We, uh, we just finished that this summer. I have a F800GS that I uh, used on that, and uh, it's just a gorgeous area. So what I wanted wow. to ask you, having seen this much territory, how does that compare to what you've seen around the rest of the world on your on your ride?
0: yeah um it's really for for me utah was probably one of the most spectacular places i've ridden the places that i rode in utah were really out there um and found some awesome places and this the whole scenery thing just like blew me away where you're totally on your own there's no one else around and all you can see is these massive rock formations and you know uh big valleys and all sorts far as you can see and that was like really spectacular um colorado is also beautiful um and there's more places in the world a little bit like colorado um you know i think like kyrgyzstan was very green and rolling hills and awesome scenery and views um you know and and i can relate that to some places like colorado as well um just it's it's hard to compare it because I always say like everywhere's everywhere you go is beautiful part yeah. of the beauty is being there and experiencing it you know um and I think in terms of like mountainous scenery Tajikistan in in Asia was probably the most spectacular um because I was riding at like four and a half thousand feet at uh, four and a half thousand meters um and the scenery around me, the mountains around me were at like seven thousand plus with big snow crevices on them, and that that was really spectacular um but I do think Utah took some beating if I'm honest, mm-hmm. like Utah was
2: yeah, Utah is absolutely amazing, and I see you' assume you're talking about the the Moab area by the description yes, of the yeah. rocks, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm taking my mountain bike out there in another week here and uh, just look forward to it yeah. and ready.
0: Spent three. We spent three days in. We just camped out in Moab, um, and we just did big loops out of Moab, and it was just awesome, like unbelievable scenery. Yeah, it is like nothing else out there.
2: Well, it's cool you mentioned uh, Tajikistan. I asked that question because I'd like to know where else, you know, overseas, I I would like to to point my front tire and and go ride someday. So I have to go check that out.
0: F for, for the problem with like places like Tajikistan is it's like it's a ride through it kind of thing. It's not an well, you can explore around it, but it was kind of a ride through for me. Um the the place I would always recommend to people is South Island, New Zealand. Like because you can fly there, you can hire a bike, you can ride for two and a half weeks and do pretty much the whole of the South Island. And it's it's amazing. I mean, everything from glaciers to swimming in the ocean—you've got everything there. Um, it was it was really nice with South Island, New Zealand. Well, the North Island was too, but I really enjoyed the South Island.
2: Yeah, that's another destination I need to get to. My wife has been over there and uh, did some yeah. bungee jumping over there while she was there, and absolutely fell in love with it. So one of these days I got to get yeah, down there.
0: Not doing the bungee jumping—I should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I went to one place. Um, And I looked at the sort of valley that you jump off this bridge and I just like, yeah, I don't really need to do that.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what it was. I think it was the it was in um, Taupo, New Zealand. Yeah. yeah and yeah. that was uh, supposed to be at least at that time. It was the, the highest uh, over water bungee jump you could uh, you could take on. So
0: yeah, I rode past it. But yeah, I didn't really feel like stopping and jumping <laughs> off it
2: next time you got to try bungee jumping it's a that is an absolute blast i've done that before up in uh, british columbia definitely got to try that one next time you have the opportunity yeah Try Paleo Meals to Go freeze-dried backpacking meals. The wholesome, gluten-free ingredients follow the Paleo diet, providing you with the lasting energy you require on your adventures. Visit www.paleo-meals-to-go.com and enter tack 25 at checkout to save 25% off your order.
1: Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics, Bent Gate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bent Gate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection.
2: You talked about a time when things didn't go bad with the, uh, or didn't go right with the Hellas rally and dislocating your shoulder. What about um, your most amazing experience on this journey? Two and a half years and many, many, many miles. Um, What would you say the the highlight has been so far?
0: Yeah, that's really hard to say um, because there's so many highlights. I think in terms of racing, it was coming second at the Baja rally. That was. uh, that was pretty amazing. Um, because I was on the big rally bike and, you know, nearly everyone else was on the enduro bikes and must to muscle that thing through and get second place was a really nice feeling. And to be only like 17 minutes off the leader, I was, I was kind of gutted. I couldn't push a bit more and get the win, but I was happy to get second and I didn't expect it. Um, but I think in terms of traveling, um, the most memorable experiences for me are things like, um, when I've been invited into people's homes, like complete strangers, like in the middle of, like in Tajikistan in the mountains, you know, when you get invited into somebody's house that doesn't speak English and, and um, they're offering you food and they don't want anything for it. They just want to understand who you are, where you're from, what you're doing here. Um, and to just, meet somebody from a different country with a different color skin and a different like appearance and different hair color. And it's just for them, It's just amazing. They don't obviously don't see people that often going through those places. Um, yeah. And and some experience, other things I can think of is like, you know, camping on the remote beaches, you know, just pulling onto a beach and camping and there's nobody about and you just make your own dinner and you just have a walk up the beach and you just like, I'm actually in the middle of nowhere, and I never even knew this place existed, and if I hadn't traveled around the world, I'd have never found it. So, yeah, those types of things.
2: That's cool. Well, you're definitely a busy guy. I mean, I caught up with you on the way back from Japan, so after you had come through this area and headed back down to uh, Texas, like you mentioned, you got on a plane, went over to Japan, and rode a couple races over there, right?
0: Yeah, I did. um, I did a two-day Enduro, two-day national Enduro in Japan um, uh, for KTM Japan. I got invited over there to race. um, That was that was a really great experience. I mean, it was. um, I'm actually making a special feature about it, so there's a video coming out about it as well. Um, It was really great to ride Enduro again. It was four years since I threw my leg over an Enduro bike and raced it. Um, so it was really nice to go and race an enduro bike again. Um, so, and then from there I I went to China, which was my first time to China. Um, and I was a guest rider at a T3 competition, which is a little bit like the GS challenge where they have teams of three. Uh, KTM riders and it's teams of three it's organised by KTM and um, they go through an obstacle course and they're timed on the slowest riders so it's the by, when, they, when all three get to the finish line that's the time they get um, and I went as a guest rider there and uh, did some demo laps and hung out with all the riders and went practicing and riding up in the mountains with them and it was it was a great time and just uh, nice to be in China for the first time as well and, and that was on a big bike that was on 1190R um, and then flew back to Texas to pick the bike up well do a load of work on the bike and then get back on the road again.
2: Right, right, yeah, definitely busy. So, do you have support dealing with the the carnets and the visas, or is this? Did you just have to put all this together and just be really good about sticking to the route that you had laid out? Because I mean, these things, at least the visas, they expire, you know, at certain points. So, you know, have to... do,
0: it. I do it. No, I do it all myself. Um, the, the the hardest part was the bit across to Russia. So, from the UK to Russia, there's a lot of visas, um, but it took me. Two months to get them all together, and you plan your you plan your trip around your visas. So if the if the longest you can get a visa is three months, then what you will do is you'll just say right, these are the countries I want to travel to, and you overlap the visas so you've got option of staying a bit longer in one country than the next. You know you don't put them all together because if anything happens, then you can't do anything. So you you just overlap them, and I think only once I had to. Kind of rush out of a country, and that was in Tajikistan um, because my visa was running out. But you know, it, generally it was no rush; it was just a, an enjoyable ride. Timescale set by what I planned to do. But since I got to Russia, once I got out of Russia, um, and Russia was the hardest visa to get because I got a three, a one-year multiple-entry business visa because I wanted to go into Russia in three different places. So that's the only way to do it. Um, but after I got out of Russia, I just now I just play it as I go along, you know. I just I kind of figure out, oh, I'm going to cross into so and so in three weeks' time. I better have a look at see what I need to do, you know, and then look it up on the internet. And oh, I need to go to the embassy and find the nearest embassy, go there and just figure it out. I mean, it what seems like a massive deal before you set off on one of these trips after a year, 18 months on the road, you just like visas, can't (laughs) they? It's like you can sort that out. DHL will help you get a carne from, you know, A to B in three days. Like everything, just it's no big deal. Like I'm I'm sat here now in Texas with a carne that's expired. I've got a new one. I went to the customs office to try and get it stamped over and they couldn't do it. And normally people be freaking out about that. And I'm just like, it's just a carne. It's just a piece of paper. I mean, I'm going to get it sorted in the next few days. No need to worry yeah. about it.
2: Well, that's funny. I imagine yeah. a trip like that just kind of beats it into you. Just, it's just one of the things you deal with on the trip. I mean, before heading out, like you said, you're just kind of stressing about this stuff and, and worrying about whether you're going to get all the paperwork together in time. And if you have them staggered the correct way so that you can make the trip as you planned it. But like you said, you just get into it and eventually you just deal with it. You know, you roll with the punches as you go. Yeah yeah cool. exactly so yeah. you're in El Paso now and you're ultimately heading south uh to the two thousand seventeen Dakar rally in for january right
0: okay. yeah that's it um, big plans to do the Dakar again um I never thought honestly I never thought in a million years that i would <laughs> I would end up doing the dakar again I thought it was done um but it just I was riding along in Australia last year um and I remember just thinking, like, it was about November time last year. What am I going to do when I get to the American continent? Because in South America, I need to do a race because I want to do a race on every continent. That's the whole idea. Um And there's not that many races to choose from. And timing-wise, looking at my schedule long distance, makes sense to do the Dakar, but do I really want to do the Dakar again? I'm like, yeah, I really do. And uh, I was like, right, well, I know as well as anyone, cause I've done it before the, one of the biggest parts is deciding to do it in the first place. Like people always ask me, what's the hardest part of your trip? And I always say the decision to do it in the really? first place. What was the hardest part about Dakar? The decision to do it in the first place, because once you commit to it and you're going for it, you're going to do it, you're going to achieve it. And so really it was just about committing to achieving that goal and doing it again. And, you know, I worked hard at it, I worked hard at many different options about how to do the race and I decided to do it Malimoto to save money uh, and also because I can manage it all myself. So I don't have to worry about a team. You know, I don't have to think about a team. I just got myself to deal with and. Uh, while it's going to be really hard work it was an extra challenge and i wanted to do it unsupported again so um last time i did it with a team the dakar rally this time i'm going to do it all on my own so i'll be doing all my own servicing and tires and everything um so it is going to be different this time um and harder but that's what it's about i mean it's no good making it the same as last time uh i'll make it different and i want to make it a cool story as well uh, uh, for people to follow so that's what i'm planning well, to do right
2: on well good luck with that i plan on following along and seeing how well you do and uh taking fifth in yeah. the Sonora rally and second in baja then uh, i think you stand a pretty good chance out there it <laughs> would be neat to see
0: yeah, my, my pace is good i just need to i just need to keep it together and don't get over my head and don't have any crashes and don't get lost you know <laughs> like yeah uh, all all the things that you need to do as a rally rider that we all know that we all go out there and push harder than we should. So I just need to just tone it back a little bit. And uh, my my absolute number one aim is to finish. um, And I'd really like to win the Malamoto class. So we'll see how it goes.
2: Yeah, I imagine that's probably one of the, the harder aspects about it. You're obviously a very competitive person. So how do you lay off the throttle just a little bit to make sure you're gonna get through the race, especially being unsupported and knowing that you know, once you get into uh into the the rest points that uh that you still have work to do yeah. um, and then to survive the thing so that you can continue on with your races to uh races to places trip.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I don't know how I'm gonna do that, but I'm gonna try. <laughs>
2: Well, you've done it so far, so I imagine you won't have any problem making it. So you're going to do the Dakar in January, and then you're not done with races to places. So where do you head from there?
0: Uh, From there, I'm probably going to spend some time maybe – I'm going to ride down to the southern tip, so to ride del Fuego. Um, And once I've been down there, probably would like to do a little bit of touring around Brazil maybe – I've not really given it much thought. I really want to get down and do the race. You know, right, riding to the start of the race is going to be difficult enough. Um, I've got just short of three months to get all the way down to Paraguay, um, so I've got to get moving. And uh, and then after once I finish South America, then I'm going to ship over to South Africa and ride home from there. And uh, my plan is well, my plan is pretty much firm that. Uh I plan to ride the Africa Eco race in twenty eighteen, January twenty eighteen on the way home. Um so in t- sometime in twenty eighteen I am to arrive home back in the UK.
2: Man, that is one heck of a journey. <laughs> what an amazing trip though. That's so cool. So once you're back in the UK, um, what are you thinking? You know, At this point, you've completed races to places. Anything you're, you're setting your sights on yet, or you think you just yeah, going to take a well, breather?
0: Yeah, I might get back to the UK. I might make a detour first. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've got India in mind and also China now. Um, so th- there's, there's another loop that might get added in. Um, I might also go home and then just go and do those two in separate trips. Um, but I think, I think I will keep races to places alive and I'll definitely keep traveling and probably definitely keep bringing media out and stuff. I really enjoy what I'm doing and if I can keep doing it for some more time, then I will do.
2: Yeah, it's hard to imagine. You get it. You're this far into this trip. It's hard to imagine even stopping at this point. I mean, I could, you know, just taking a small, you know, long backpacking trip or a long ride. You, 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 when you once you finally get into it and you're learning, you're living off the road and you're in your element. It's just the the thought of even stopping all of that and going back to some other normal life doesn't doesn't even equate. So I imagine now that you've started this, you'll probably never stop it. You know, it, it will always be alive to to one extent or another.
0: Yeah. No. And, no, you know, even now I've got so much work to do on the bike. I really dislike working on the bike and it's hot and there's so much to do and I've got to leave in a few days. But as soon as I get on the road, there's a smile on my face. I get back into filming and I start enjoying meeting people and enjoying the travel experience again. And, you, and then you just realize why you just put all that effort into getting ready to go again. You know, it's just, it's an amazing experience.
2: <laughs> well, it's got to be sweet to, to finally get back on the road. Well, you got some work to do on your bike, so I will let you go and, and get to that so you can get off on the, the right schedule. Yeah. And, uh, man, Lyndon, thanks so much for, for taking the time to uh, to share your journey with us. And I hope you guys go out and check out uh, his YouTube channel. Just look up uh, Lyndon Poskitt, P-O-S-K-I-T-T. Yep. On YouTube, you can look up Adventure Spec. you can find them there, and find that Patreon link as well. I'll put all of these links in our show notes, so you can get to them quite easily. So, yep. Linden, for your time, I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, and if anyone wants to follow me daily, they can follow me on Facebook, it's quite... I've got Linden Poskett Racing on Facebook is where I kind of post something every day on there, so... A bit more real time
2: okay cool we will definitely find that link and get that under the the notes as well so want people to to find out who you are where you are and how to follow you so alright buddy well right. good luck on the rest of your journey I can't wait to see where it takes you and good luck in the Dakar
0: yeah thanks for having me on thank you
1: you have heard all the hype around paleo low carb organics diet powders and the lot how does one sort out what really works good news Gary Collins has done the homework for you Regain and maintain your health and live that life of vitality. Learn more at primalpowermethod.com.